Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. We're going to be looking this morning at the issue of Christian liberty, and specifically the title is The First Temptation of Christian Liberty, and that temptation is assuming or taking the place of God. Let me read the first 12 verses that we'll direct our attention to this morning just to set it in our memory. Romans chapter 14, verse 1, Paul says, Now, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, and he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not For the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks also to God. For not one of us lives for himself and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again that He might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So, Each one of us will give an account of himself to God. For a Christian, the Bible is our authority. It's our guide for truth. It's our guide for all of life. In other words, the scriptures themselves tell us what to do, what not to do, what to think, what not to think how to live and how not to live. Now, that sounds simple enough, doesn't it? We're Bible-believing Christians. We let it guide us. And there are aspects of that obedience that are so clear you can't miss them. They need little discussion. For example, um, it's wrong to steal. Would anyone argue about the fact that stealing is wrong or maybe... It's wrong to commit adultery. I've never had a debate with anyone who claims to know Christ who says there's a biblical justification for adultery. 
It's wrong to murder. On the other side, it's right to love others. It's right to pray for others. It's right to serve others. It's right to be kind to others. Those are really clear. It's the the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots in the Bible that are so easy to interpret, easy to apply, and easy to understand. But there's another whole category of obeying God that's not in in the dimension of commands, but in the category of wisdom. The Bible teaches us in two ways. It teaches us what to do and not do by command, by prohibition, but it also teaches us principles that we apply to situations that the Bible doesn't specifically apply. For example, do you think the Bible says anything about who you're to marry? Well, yes and no, right? I mean, don't open your your Bible, drop your finger, and expect that that verse is going to tell you the one. But there are lots of principles that tell us who to marry, how to marry, correct? Does the Bible tell you which job to take? No, but there are lots of principles that inform us on how to be wise in making those kinds of decisions. But there's another area that we've got to talk about that Paul addresses. And that's the issue that we commonly call gray areas, or some call the dimensions of Christian liberty or... Christian exceptions. For example, what kind of music is okay to listen to? If I were to interview each one of you, I don't think we would get a common answer. Or what can a Christian do or not do on Sunday? What entertainment is suitable for a believer? The obvious one, can or should a Christian drink an alcoholic beverage, a fermented or a distilled drink? Where should a Christian send his or her kid to school? How many children should a believer have? Is it okay to possess what we call luxury items? Or should a Christian always drive a car that's on its last leg just to show that we are unwise? No, we won't do that. Nice homes, cars, clothes, etc. Now those are decisions that we make, but there's also decisions we make about those who have different opinions and practices in these areas than we do, right? Well, I wouldn't listen to that. I wouldn't watch that. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't wear that. I have more kids. I have less kids. I'm homeschool. I'm public school. I'm private school. I'm, and we goes on and on and on. Does the Bible talk about these issues? Well, yes and no. It gives us wisdom principles by which we apply the mind of God in our specific context. And that's what Paul opens up in this chapter These are issues of a Christian's freedom in Christ. And they're also issues that can cause a believer to become the judge of others who don't hold to your exact preferences and convictions. How do you view others who don't share your ideas about these and other gray areas? 
If the Bible is our guide, then we should expect it to address these and other issues. And it does, but not in the way you might think. Instead of listing all of the issues, this chapter gives us principles by which we can evaluate our own lives and principles that prevent us from wrongly evaluating others. The Bible does address us about these issues and how we think about them, how we think about how others think about them. It just doesn't address every issue. And I think the genius of God is on display here. Is it possible to talk about every Christian freedom and every culture and every time that, that has ever existed between the Bible and now? It's impossible. So he gives us the principles that we can think about the issue itself and the principles that we can think about others who differ from our own preferences and convictions. In Romans 14 is the most concentrated instruction about the Christian and the issues of conscience, liberty, and freedom. 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 also address uh, this, and that's for another study in another time. Now, this is such a tight argument. I need to give you a little heads up. This is such a tightly woven argument that Paul gives that really breaks down into two simple sections, 1 through 12 and 13 through 23. And so, we're going to look at the first 12 verses today and the next 11 verses next week and cover the whole chapter, Lord willing, in two weeks. David Foss told me earlier he thought I was becoming a liberal because I was going so fast through this chapter. Just for uh, a comparison, it took us 26 sermons to go through Romans 8. Now, it's important that you see the big picture and to overstrain at the individual verses really in this section undermines the trajectory and the power and the argument that Paul is laying out. So we're going to move pretty quickly through this and I think it's important that we do so. Now, as Romans were coming to faith in Christ, many had to work through their new faith and how it related to their old practices, both Jews and Gentiles. They had to understand the emotional, conscientious relationship they had with old practices and how that was relating to their freedom in Christ. Some were trapped by their consciences. Some were pressured by their old way of living and by others who knew them as unbelievers and they had to make these decisions. And the question came up as to how to live and worship beside and alongside others who didn't hold the exact same standards as you do. Now, having been the pastor here for coming up on six years, I can tell you with great certainty that not everyone in this room shares the same convictions about that list and other things that I listed a minute ago. Just read Facebook and you can find that out. We'll talk about that in a minute. How do you worship alongside others who may be sitting beside you right now who don't agree completely on the same issues of Christian liberty and license and legalism as, as you do. Christian freedom. How, how, do you, how do you work alongside and minister alongside of others? Well, Paul addresses that and the principles he gives them are 
so exacting for us today. He discusses the issue of conscience, and he outlines generally two temptations that we can fall into that break down into these two sections. In the first 12 verses, he says, be careful that you don't assume the place of God when you're looking at others and their experience with liberties and Christian freedom. In other words, you're, you become their judge. In the second 11 verses, he says, don't take the place of the devil. In other words, using your exercise as a Christian who's free in Christ to experience things that might tempt others to sin. Now, he doesn't say, don't be like God as the judge and don't be like the devil as the tempter. But he does talk about those issues, and those are definitely owned by God and owned by Satan. So we're going to break it down like that. The first, the first uh, uh, section is really telling us don't assume the place of God as judge. And next week we'll look at don't assume the place of the devil and tempt. So we're going to break it down this morning, moving very quickly, as I said, into three dreadful problems with passing judgment as God. Three dreadful problems with what he accuses us of, passing judgment as God. The first dreadful problem is in verse 1. Passing judgment misunderstands the problem of liberties or freedom in Christ. Passing judgment completely misunderstands the problem, what's at stake, the real issue in liberties. Now, by liberties, we mean things that are permissible but have to be managed with wisdom. Verse 1. Now, accept the one who is weak in faith but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his, I love this word, perspective, his opinions. He doesn't say on his biblical mandate. He doesn't say on his biblical principles. He says on the way he looks at it, his opinions, the way he thinks about them. Now, if you were to look across the page, this acceptance goes over to verse 7 of chapter 15. Accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. So this idea of accepting one another is very important to Paul. And by accepting, he means don't treat as an enemy. The word accept means to treat as a friend. God has accepted us as his friend and we should not treat other believers who differ with us on gray areas as enemies instead to accept them. In 15.1, Paul identifies himself as one who is strong but also indicates that being strong has a responsibility to those who are weak in faith. What does it mean to be weak in faith? It's weak in conscience. It doesn't mean that you're weak in your belief in Jesus. That's, there are other passages that, that deal with that. And that's certainly a, an issue of assurance, an issue of faith, an issue of perseverance, an issue of understanding and, and theology. But this is talking about weak in faith, meaning that your conscience is weak and your application of what you believe ends up causing you to disregard others and how they see the same issue as you see, but from a different perspective and application. There were those in Rome whose faith was weak. 
there are people at Mission Road Bible Church whose faith also is weak. As the context is going to indicate as we move through this, this chapter, it related to things that were not clearly articulated by God as sinful actions, namely eating, drinking wine, and observing special days. Those are the three examples he uses in this chapter. What are these days? Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. They were Jewish or pagan holidays that people felt compelled to keep after they came to Christ. Now, notice where the weakness is. It's in faith. Except one who is weak in faith. His faith needs to be bolstered. Now, let me say to all of us, if you find yourself this week and next week in the category of being weak in faith, the answer to that is not to be weaker and better in your weakness of faith. The, the admonition is to become stronger in faith. How do you become stronger in faith? You can handle others' differing opinions here in this passage without passing Judgment, that's how you do it. Misinformed consciences can wreak havoc on a person's faith. So the idea is to inform the conscience to think more clearly, not only about our relationship with the Lord and His judgment, but also with our understanding of others with differing opinions. Now, in this passage, please know, both the strong and the weak believed the gospel. Both the strong and the weak were genuinely redeemed by Christ and saved. Verse 2. One person has faith that he may eat all things. But he who is weak eats vegetables only. Two things are in play here. Eating food that was ceremonially unclean. He'll talk about being unclean. Uh, uh, passages down in verse 14, rather. Um, foods that are unclean. So things that were unclean in the Old Testament that in Acts 10, remember Acts 10? Every time I eat a BLT, I thank God for Acts 10, which says that pigs are on the menu. They were unclean in the Old Testament. Remember the sheet that he drops in front of Peter, shows him a divine video and says, rise, kill, eat. But some people were, were trapped by their conscience. They said, I just can't do it. I have known Jewish Christians who to this day cannot eat pork with a clean conscience. It bothers them. But there's also the other, deal, other idea that he addresses in 1 Corinthians 10 of meat that had been sacrificed, an animal sacrificed to an idol, and out behind the temple was always a butchery where they would sell the meat. And it was always good meat because you had to be, bring the best to be sacrificed. It was a very common thing. It served double duty to butcher the animal in and, and, and a sacrifice and to sell the meat behind the temple. And that bothered some people, and Paul says in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, look, there's no such thing as an idol, so it's just meat. But if it bothers somebody, you need to be aware to not violate their conscience. And we'll get into that a little bit more next week. Some has the faith that they can eat anything except mushrooms. That's in the footnote of the, of the New American Standard. No. But he who is weak eats vegetables only. Acts 10, all things are clean. If it's edible, you can eat it. However, some 
would still try, even after they came to Christ, to keep the strictest diet by not eating any meat or any meat they did not know where it came from for fear that it might be unclean or had been sacrificed to an idol. Now in verse 3, Paul comes to the principle and the command about this. I mean, some eat, and by the way, the vegetables, that, that's like, I'm not going to eat any meat. That's the extremist. That's the extreme legalist. Verse 3, the one who eats, the one who says, it's all, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, it's been sanctified by God, is edible. The one who eats is not to, here's our phrase again, regard with contempt. We read that in verse 1. The one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to, here's our word again, judge the one who eats. Why? Because God has accepted him. The problem related to the Christian freedom and liberty in this passage is not whether or not one partakes, but how we view others who do or don't when they have a different perspective than we do. Contempt. Judge. What are the temptations here? A person who enjoys his liberty in Christ is tempted to look down upon and despise, disdain a person whose conscience will not allow him the same freedom. I was in a um, uh, early morning meeting one time years ago with a group of men and uh, two of them began to argue and their argument involved me. And I, I wasn't even a part of the process. And they, one of them was arguing, and it came to the drinking of wine, drinking alcohol. They said, we think that the pastor ought to be the first and foremost example in the church of the guy who is, is good at drinking. I said, what do you mean good at drinking? He can drink without getting drunk. He can drink and appreciate fine wines. And he shows them as an example how to participate in liberties in an exemplary way. And the other guy began barking back, no, 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 because 1 Corinthians 10, Romans 14, he could cause someone to follow his example and stumble and sin. They went back and forth and back and forth. One of them was looking down on those who don't participate in their Christian freedom, and the other was judging one who did participate in Christian freedom. Freedom. And I was in the middle as the rope they were playing tug of war over. How do you land on that? It tells us. If you have the freedom in Christ to participate in things not forbidden in the scripture by principle or by precept, and others don't, don't look down at them as the weak in faith. This is not your best play. Well, <laughs> I'm strong. And you're weak. And if you were strong like me, you could do what I'm doing and you would be fine. But since you're weak and I'm strong, I don't know if I mentioned that or not, then you need to be strong like me because I am strong. On the other side, what do you mean you had wine with your dinner? Do you not know that people go to hell for less? Time out. Can we let the Bible make biblical sense out of all of this? Look at how Paul sticks the dismount in verse 3. God has accepted him. On the basis of what does God accept person? Their use or, or, 
or uh, not using liberty. No, no, no. On the basis of his son, on the basis of the gospel. Unfortunately, I think we've all seen how easy this is to do indiscriminately and anonymously. I told you we're going to come back on Facebook. I have seen more unforced errors made by people's posts that are ridiculous. Can I just ask you, who, who are you trying to shepherd in social media? Shouldn't shepherding happen in this group of people face to face confronting and correcting and repenting and encouraging there's another sermon that's brewing in my heart for later it's one of those I've got a great sermon I just need a passage for it on Facebook but I gotta I gotta gotta, we'll talk about that another time please resist the temptation to promote debate defend and work out your convictions on Christian freedoms through social media please It doesn't look good to the outside world. It doesn't look good to gospel-believing believers who can't hear you follow up and people don't read all your comments. You wanna burst your bubble? And please don't let internet articles and blogs be the sources for your views and opinions rather than the word of God. For too many Facebookers, there's a desire to be an expert rather than a servant. Don't miss the last phrase of verse three. God has accepted him because of the gospel. And the Paul's point is that we see best when we see others from God's perspective as believers and spiritual siblings. We see best, we see others best when we see them the way God sees them, as his children and our siblings. You know, you're gonna spend eternity with other believers. You might wanna learn how to get along with them now So the first dreadful problem with passing judgment as God is passing judgment misunderstands the problem of liberty. The problem of liberty is not what someone else does. The problem of liberty is how we view the liberty itself and how we view ourselves as potentially judges. And we'll come back to that. Verses four to eight. Number two, the second dreadful problem. Passing judgment misunderstands accountability to the Lord. Passing judgment misunderstands accountability to the Lord. Verse four. If you underline things in your Bible, here's one. Ready? Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. What's at stake here is really interesting. He says, don't judge the servant of another. What he's saying is don't assume that you are another's master or Lord. That's the point. Who are you to judge the servant of another? The answer is you think you're the Lord of the other. The danger of judging others comes in full force here in verse four. Paul says, who do you think you are? Who do we think we are? What's the implied answer of of that question in verse four? Who are you to judge the servant of another? Well, I'm the Lord. That's the answer he's trying to correct. 
And then he says, to his own master, he stands or falls, he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. Only God is judge. It does not mean, by the way, that we do not make judgments on ourselves or even others. 1 Corinthians 11 says we come to the Lord's table to make a judgment on ourselves. Galatians 6 says we go to people when we see them in sin, we confront them, we carry their burden. We do make judgments, but that's different than making ourselves out to be the, the judge. The concern here is that one's conscience, listen, one's conscience becomes the standard for judging others in place of God's word being the standard for judging others. And Paul makes the point that servants are accountable to their masters, and you and I are no one's master. Our acceptance before the Lord is based on our relationship with him through the gospel. And this is how he, the text says, makes us stand. And now he goes to an example that was causing a lot of division in the Roman church. The observance and honoring of certain days. This is interesting. Verse 5. One person regards one day above the other. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced of his own conscience. This is like the, the eating. Some people can eat anything. Some people are really strict. Some people say, every day is the same. Some people say, oh, no, no. Some days are special. What are these days he's talking about? Well, probably for the Jews, it was Sabbaths, Jewish holidays. For the pagans, the Gentile, it may have been uh, the festivals to, to certain gods where the whole um, day, uh, uh, Rome would shut down for the day in a, a national holiday. Some were really pricked in their conscience and said, man, if I don't observe this day, especially the Sabbath, if I don't observe the Sabbath, God had a lot to say about the Sabbath and and I'm in trouble. Remember the Revelation chapter 1 verse 10, John found himself in the spirit on the Lord's day. And if you go back to Acts 20 verse 7, they, we found out that the Lord's day, the day they met was the first day of the week. Why? Without going into it. The early Christians believed that the resurrection was a greater point of celebration and remembrance than the creation. Some people were, were Sabbatarians. Paul addressed the same issue to the Galatian church in Galatians 4, 9 and 10. But now that you have come to know God or rather been known by God, How is it that you turn your back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved over uh, over and over again? What are you talking about? Enslaved to what? Next verse. You observe days and months and seasons and years. In other words, you're trapped in your old um, misunderstanding of the law that God is pleased by saying, well, they took the day off on on uh, on, uh, on Saturday, on the seventh day, and so I'm pleased with them. It's interesting that Paul does not say change. Now, we should grow from weak to strong. We should grow as strong, understanding weak. We should grow. But look at his graciousness. Boy, if we could adopt this attitude of verse 6. He who observes the day, listen, you got to know, when they do that, he's taking the highest uh, benefit of the doubt they do it for the Lord. They're doing it out of conscience wanting to serve the Lord. He who eats does it for the Lord. 
for he gives thanks to God. He who eats not, for he does not eat, uh, for the Lord he does not eat, and he gives thanks to God. In other words, if someone's motivation is truly rooted in their conscientious attachment to pleasing God, let them be thankful and let's work on maturity, both in response and in growth. I love the fact that he just goes to the heart and gives the benefit of the doubt. He doesn't judge in verse 6 as he's accusing us of so easily doing in the previous five verses. The crux of the reason Paul gives for not judging is it all goes back to one's relationship and motivation in God. Remember 1 Corinthians 10, 31, all things are to be done for the glory of God. There's a critical qualification for our enjoying a freedom here that restricts it in this verse. And that is the ability to give thanks for that freedom. I think in, in, implicit in this verse is there's nothing a believer should do for which we can't drop to our knees in the middle of that enjoyment and thank God for it. I remember something that happened as a youth pastor. In 1984, Adam, were you even alive in 1984? Our youth pastor wasn't even alive. As my sons would say, back in the 1900s, our church had a special Vesper service one day. It was a great day. It was this one, we did it every year, and our little Baptist church I was, I was involved with, I was a youth pastor, and every spring we'd have a, a, a church picnic followed by a Vesper service, followed by a, a, a dinner, a light snack dinner, and then an evening service. And so we wouldn't have anything going on Sunday morning. And so, being a, I hope, faithful youth pastor, I talked to the guys and we had an activity that morning with, with, with the students. In fact, we got together and played flag football out in the field, pretty close to the church, but not in the churchyard. We decided to have a flag football little tournament and game in the park. It was about 11 a.m., and a car came by and slowed down. And a guy with, I'll never forget this, a very, very poorly tied tie. I don't know why that sticks out. Hung out the window. He was on the other side of the road. So he's on the driver's side. If you park, he's on this side. He almost stops and slows down. He yells out the window, you ought to be in church, young people. Hit the gas. And as he was driving off, and I've got all these students watching me in my unsanctified youth pastorness, I said, we're going to be later! <laughs> if, I don't know this friend, I hope he's a brother, but he made a judgment and didn't have all the information. We were going to be in church in two hours! How easy is it for us to go straight to judgment? Verse 7. For not one of us lives for himself and not one dies for himself. This is a Christian principle of being comprehensively devoted to Christ. For if we live, we live how? For the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. 
And the contrast here is we're not enslaved to others' consciences. We're enslaved to our Lord Jesus. Look at the last phrase in verse 8. We are the Lord's. How many sins would be prevented by remembering that simple principle? How many thoughts would be averted? How many patterns of sin would be broken? How many temptations would, be, would have a victory over them if we just remembered I'm not my own. We are the Lord's. First Corinthians 6, you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. So much can be solved if we simply understand and apply this truth. His point here in verses 7 and 8 is in talking about dying and living and dying with the Lord and living with the Lord. He's just saying the beginning and the end, all of life, every dimension of life is regulated by the word of God. That's what he's saying. Living and dying, everything. And especially regarding our Christian freedoms and our liberties. We're not our own and neither are our decisions. And that's gonna be addressed next week in great detail. By the way, he will further explain this when he gets down to chapter 15, verses one to three. Can you just take a peek at 15? Really, there shouldn't be a chapter division there between 14 and 15. He's continuing to talk about freedom. He says, now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please who? Ourselves. If your enjoyment of any Christian freedom is for your enjoyment and not the bearing of the burdens of those around you, you misunderstand Christian freedom. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good and to his edification. For even Christ, here's the example, even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the approaches of those who reproached you fell on me. What's he saying? The very nature of the gospel compels us we don't look at Christian freedoms as a way to enjoy the world and please ourselves if it's at the expense of damage to another brother. Next week's gonna outline that in great detail. Our accountability is to the Lord and so judging others is really an attempt to make them accountable to us as God. That's the point. Now that brings us to a third dreadful problem with passing judgment as God. And this is really the, the climax. Passing judgment misunderstands the coming judgment. Passing judgment misunderstands, ignores, puts off, doesn't consider the coming judgment. Verse nine. For to this end Christ died and lived again. Now he explains to what end he's talking about. That he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Verse 9 is loaded, loaded with theology, gospel truth. The death of Christ on the cross, for to this end Christ died. And this is a great place to just pause and just say, I, I, I would be a fool as one of your shepherds, to assume that everyone in here this morning is a Christian. 
that Jesus is the Lord of every individual in these seats. Christ died for the sins of those who believe. Do you believe? Will you believe? Aaron, you led us in such great theology of being forgiven, of experiencing mercy and grace. We sing about that. Have you experienced forgiveness and grace and mercy? Is your guilt consuming you? All of that can be unloaded on Christ at the cross in his death as a substitute for us having to die for our own sin and bear the load of the wrath of God. The purpose is to establish his right and claim to be Lord and Master. Why should you submit to Christ? Why should you believe in him? Because he died for your sins. How do we know that's anything special? He says in the next phrase, he lived again. I love the way he says that. There's so many ways that the Bible describes the resurrection. He died and he lived again. Revelation 1, I was dead and I'm alive forevermore. It's a great way to start the gospel of someone. Can I talk to you about someone who is dead and they're not dead anymore? They'll say, well, who, what are you talking about? The Savior, Jesus, that's who I'm talking about. He's alive and we can, we, by the way, we could never submit to a dead Lord How do you submit to a dead Lord? You can't. It only makes sense if he's alive, and Paul says so. Boy, I hope you know the gospel. I hope you believe the gospel. And if you haven't, don't leave the building without talking to someone about the security of your soul. I want to beg you, this is so important that you leave this church this morning with your soul secure in the death of Christ for your sins so you don't have to die for your own because it would never make a payment to God for what we owe him as a debt of our ingratitude. That he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You know what he's saying? He's the Lord of us now and he's the Lord of us forever. Eternity is in focus in this passage. Now he comes back, verse 10, but you, why do you judge your brother? He doesn't say, if perchance you might, he knows that all of us are natural born judges. Why do you judge your brother? Or again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? We're back to those same words again. For we all stand before the judgment, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. He returns to the same two phrases he began with in verse one, verse three, judging, holding people in contempt. He's talking about those who judge people who who use their liberties and use their Christian freedom and enjoy that and they think they're wrong because they're doing that and he's talking to those who look with contempt with those who are less um, uh, conscientious or uh, less um, uh, able and strong to enjoy their own freedom in Christ. Why do you look at each other with contempt? Why do you judge? Why would we do this to one another? Why do you judge your brother? Why are we acting like God? The reason for the question is that it's ridiculous to stand before the judgment, stand in judgment rather, 
when everyone will eventually stand before the Lord and give an account for himself. He specifically refers to the judgment seat. Interesting, here is the judgment seat of God in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 and 10. It's the judgment seat of Christ. Therefore, we all have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, dead or alive, same principle, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed, rewarded for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. That's not a judgment that leads to hell. That's a judgment that leads to reward and honor. By the way, it's not the great white throne judgment. There's a 19th century hymn called Around the Great White Throne. I was gonna read you some of the lyrics. They're really not worthy, worthy to be read. Some dear soul saw it, says, I what a, what a great thing it will be to rejoice with friends around the great white throne. Everyone who appears before the great white throne in Revelation 20 goes to hell. We don't appear before the great white throne. We appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It's an honorable throne. It's a throne that someone would go to, a judgment seat that someone would go to after winning a race and be crowned with a wreath. What he's saying is, God's going to judge us. You don't have to. And everyone will have an account, verse 11, for it is written, as I live, he's quoting Isaiah 45, 23 here, by the way. As I live, says the Lord, every, not some, not most, not those who believe in me, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall give praise to God. That's also quoted, as you know, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 11 and 10 and 11. His thrust is simple. We either willingly submit to the Lordship of Christ here and we bow in humble worship and adoration or he will break our legs in submission at the great white throne. Every knee one day will bow and every tongue will give praise to God as he tells the Philippians, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is, is who? The Lord. And Isaiah 45, 3 says that only God is the Lord. Jesus is God. So he punctuates this section with a summary verse, a summary statement in verse 12. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. We don't have to be God. We don't act like God. We don't judge like God. Because everyone, every man, everyone, every woman will give an account of himself to God. And in this context, every one of us will give an account to God for how we have either judged others as they have enjoyed their freedom in Christ or the next 11 verses, used our freedom to tempt or to have contempt to others who don't enjoy their freedom in Christ. I think it's interesting with that in mind, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether then you eat or you drink, or I love this phrase, whatever you do, do all 
to the what? Glory of God. The simple question, and we'll summarize this in the coming weeks, is does this glorify God? Does this make much of a great God or not? So who's right? The strong people or the weak people? Well, the following verses are gonna confront both groups. He's gonna say, if you're weak, inform your conscience and quit being a judge. And if you're strong, quit using your liberties unwittingly to tempt others who might violate their conscience by following your example. You say, so what should I do? It's not that simple. And he'll give us the principles in the next 11 verses to navigate that. And you can read ahead and see what you think they are. Weak believers need a correction because their, their position as judge is wrong. They condemn other folks who don't agree with them. They engage in censoring others, sometimes even on Facebook. But the strong also needed correction because while their principle might be right, he's given us all things to enjoy, they've misused it in their attitude toward those who don't enjoy the freedom that they do. The point is we treat one another with love and consideration. The strong and the weak should love and care for one another and what's best for them, not what's best for us. So if you're smart, and I know you are, and you're biblical, and I know we're all trying to be, you have a lot of questions. Should I, shouldn't I? Can I, can't I? What? Next week. Next week, he'll answer that. But it's not gonna be black and white. It's gonna be in the category of wisdom in how you exercise these things. And it's not, it's not always the same in every culture. Every church has a culture. Every city has a culture. Every country has a culture. Every time period has a culture. It's a matter of being wise. And we'll develop some principles next week from Paul's remainder in this chapter that will allow us to make what I think will be God-honoring, glorifying decisions.